0: Turn, if you would, to Mark chapter 13. We started this last week, and we did it in kind of a strange fashion. If you remember, Jesus spent a chapter and a half, now you'd know he wasn't spending chapters, but we spent a chapter and a half talking about Jesus and his interaction with the religious officials they attacked him, he poked back a little bit, and finally they said, enough is enough, and they stopped. And what we're going to see in chapter 14 is they're going to leave and have a discussion about how to kill him. Jesus and his disciples start to leave Jerusalem, and the disciples say, look at these magnificent buildings, the temple. And then they, in Jesus' remarks, well, all of this is going to be destroyed, And they're going, how can that be? So they get away, and four of the disciples come to him and ask him, when are these things going to happen, and what are the signs that these things are going to happen? And that produces chapter 13. Um, Last week, we jumped to the end of the chapter, because I wanted to make sure you knew the lesson of the chapter. The lesson of the chapter being, we don't know when these things are going to happen, and we are told to be awake. We are told to be prepared so that when they do happen, we will be doing what God has asked us to do. Then we jumped back to kind of the beginning of the chapter, and talked about the fact that in these end times, there will be those who are trying to deceive us. And we had a kind of a passionate discussion about why we would be susceptible to being deceived. And the fact that there are so many bizarre things going on in the world. We would love it if somebody would come along and say, I've got the solution. I've got the fix follow me, I am the Messiah. And Jesus said, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived by these people, because when I do come back, it's going to be very obvious. The first coming of Jesus, born in a manger, was, well, it was somewhat hidden. I mean, let's face it. Middle of nowhere, middle of the poor part of town. He's married, he's born in a manger. Who knew? The second time, it won't be that way. Now, having done that lesson, we're going to back up a little bit and actually do a little more academic study of what this chapter is trying to tell us. Because we know that this chapter is talking about the second coming of Christ. Because down there in verses 24 and 27, Jesus actually returns. The question is, how do all of these signs fit together to point to that or to not point to that? And how do we relate to all of these? So we're going to try to read the whole chapter, but first we're going to do a little scholarly work. Okay? Let me find a good picture. How many of you have ever seen this picture before? Everybody has seen this picture in some form or fashion. When talking about the second coming, we talk about several events and we name things based on one of those events, which is the millennial kingdom. The millennial kingdom is referred to in the book of Revelation as a thousand-year period. And people's discussion about the second coming revolve around, is Jesus going to come before, after, during, whatever, this millennial period? So I'm going to tell you the big words... And then we'll go back and we'll cover chapter 13 of Mark. Start at uh, the bottom, okay? On the left-hand side, we have the cross. That is Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, ascended into heaven. And for an Millennialist, you see that word there, Millennialist. You know what the word, I mean, when you put an A in front of it, what it means? Not. Okay, According to this position, the millennial kingdom as described in the book of Revelation is just a symbol of our current period of time, our current age. There is no separate millennia. We are in the millennia right now. And at the end of this period, there will be a second coming and the final judgment. Now, in order to do that, they have to understand that the millennia is just a picture and 1,000 years is really just a big number because obviously Jesus didn't return after 1,000 years. That is the amillennialist position. And there are amillennialists today who are alive and well. In order to understand the amillennialist position you have to accept the fact that the majority of the events recorded in Mark chapter 13 have already happened. In fact, most of the events recorded in the book of Revelation have already happened. And we're actually going to see that some of that kind of makes sense. But it's still not the correct position. Right above that, we have what is known as postmillennialism. Being a postmillennialist would be a wonderful thing if you could squint your eyes and believe it. Postmillennialism believes that this world is going to get better and better. We are going to obtain the kingdom of heaven on this earth and for a thousand-year period... We will have the kingdom of earth on this planet, and then Jesus will return. So there is a thousand-year period. There is a millennia, but it is brought about because of the movement of the Christian church on the earth right now. The late 1800s were kind of the heyday of post-millennialism. And then something happened. It's called World War I. And if that didn't convince you, World War II came along with the gas chambers and the atrocities and people started thinking, you know, maybe it's not getting better and better. Maybe the world is not going to produce the kingdom of God in the absence of the return of Jesus Christ. It is interesting, though, from a historian's viewpoint, if you look at post-millennialism, you do know that at the beginning of the Civil War, the first major battle of the war, the Battle of Manassas or Bull Run, depending on whether you're a Southerner or a Yankee, the first battle, lots of people, from civilians from D.C., rode out to watch the battle because they were convinced... They were going to win this battle, the war would be over, slavery would be done in, and the kingdom of God would begin because slavery was that which was keeping Christ from fulfilling his kingdom. Well, if you know the history, they lost the battle. All of these civilians went running back to D.C. If you look at the prohibition movement, there was this tent of post-millennialism attached to that. All we have to do is get rid of the wicked, evil alcohol and the kingdom of heaven would be brought unto earth. In case you didn't notice, that didn't happen. That is what is known as post-millennialist. There are still post-millennialists today. I have met some of them. I've had some conversations with them. Uh, There's not that many of them. Okay, one book that I read said there weren't any of them because the World Wars got rid of them. That's not entirely true, but there's not that many of them. Now, if the Millennial Kingdom is not the period we're in now, and if the Millennial Kingdom is not this period of earthly history where Christ is, well, where the teachings of Christ are controlling the planet, then we're left with two different options. Which is the millennial is some millennium is sometime in the future, and it is brought about by the return of Christ. So, if you look at the very top, you have what is traditionally known as well, historical premillennialism, post tribulational premillennialism. The second one is what our church actually believes. Which is pre tribulational premillennialism. What in the world does that mean? The premillennialism says that Christ is going to return before the millennial kingdom begins. Because the only way we're going to have a kingdom of God on earth is if the king is here. So that is premillennialism. Now, the scripture also talks about this thing which we use the word, the rapture. The rapture is not actually the word itself. It's not in the scripture. But the idea is that we believers will be taken up into heaven. When does that happen? Okay, The rapture either happens at the beginning of the tribulation the middle of the Tribulation, or, are you ready for it, the end of the Tribulation. So, you can be a pre-Tribulational, pre-millennialist, you can be a mid-Tribulational, pre-millennialist, or you can be a post-Tribulational, pre I think I got them all covered. Our church ascribes to pre-tribulational. That means that before the tribulation, we, the believers who are still alive when this happens, will be taken up to meet Christ and will not be here for the tribulation. I was raised on this uh, school of thought, and I accept this school of thought. It is interesting... Um we had an interim pastor when I was growing up one time, and he was teaching through the book of Revelation, and he was running out of time because we were about to bring in another pastor. So he rushed to finish off, and he wanted to talk about a heresy. And the heresy he wanted to talk about was pre-tribulational premillennialism, because His argument was that Christians have suffered throughout history. We know that. So the idea that Christians wouldn't suffer in the future is, in his opinion, a heresy. Hmm. Great guy, by the way. For a couple of weeks, that's all it was, actually, my uh, wife and I, when we were just married, we had one child, we visited a Presbyterian church. That was just starting out. I am not a Presbyterian, but I do I, I we attended this new church that was starting in the Arlington area. And the first week we went to the church service, then we went to the evening service, which was actually held in the pastor's home. And one of the elders spoke, and with five minutes left in the lesson, he said now we don't have time to discuss this, but I want to tell you something. And he launches into a 45-minute, <laughs> did I happen to tell you there was five minutes left in the class? A 45-minute diatribe against dispensationalism. Well, it was interesting because the pastor called me up the next night because he was very worried what I thought about all this. I was busy, so I told him I'd call him back in 30 minutes. I was still busy, so he called me back again. Anyway, these are the timelines that the Second Coming needs to fit into. Now, having said all of this, there are other views of all of this, but these are the accepted ones. I could stop and ask if there's any questions, but there probably are, so we're not going to ask the question. (laughs) The problem that we are going to face today, though, is that to truly understand these, you need to understand the book of Revelation, you need to understand the book of Daniel, and you need to understand various scriptures spread throughout the prophets and the epistles. The discussion in Mark chapter 13, which is known as the Olivet Discourse, is just one piece of all of this discussion. And it's a single piece that actually can be confusing of where it fits into the timeline. Let's talk more history. You know, right that the Romans are going to destroy Jerusalem in 70 A.D. This was caused by a revolt, and like lots of revolt, it started over taxes. The Romans wanted more taxes. The Jews said no. The Jews said you can't have more money, and the Romans said, well, we know where your money is. It's in the temple, and we're going to go get it. Thus starting the Jewish revolt. Vespasian was put in charge of this assault, but before it was over, the uh, Caesar, the emperor, died, and Vespasian raced back to Rome to finish off the battle, I mean, to uh, become Caesar. So his son Titus actually took over and actually captured Rome, I mean, uh, Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. That's why today there is no temple in Jerusalem. There is the temple mount, which is the wailing wall that the Jews pray at. There is no temple because the Romans tore it to the ground. Now, if you want to read Josephus, there's this interesting discussion in there. Between Vespasian leaving and Titus taking over, there's this kind of little break in the fighting, and you would have thought, this is Josephus, paraphrased, you would have thought that the Jews would have used this opportunity to strengthen their defenses. What did they do? They fought the other Jews. Now that the Romans weren't here, we're going to fight amongst ourselves for a while so that when Titus shows up, he destroys the town. And as you are aware, the the, uh, revolt actually continues until Masada itself falls. Why are we talking about this? Mark chapter 13. If you are a post-millennialist or an amillennialist, you think that the events in chapter 13 of Mark are talking about that the Jewish revolt. And you can see wars, rumors, and wars, fleeing to the countryside, don't stop to gather your stuff, run away. That's what they're talking about. So, where are we? Oh, we'll talk about that one in a moment. Back to the outline. We do have to read the passage. Verse 3 of chapter 13. And as he, Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the signs when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now, the verse that corresponds to this in the book of Matthew makes the question a little bit more explicit, which is, when will the temple be destroyed? When will the return happen? Acknowledging the fact that those are two different events. But to a lot of the disciples, that understanding is probably not real clear. Jesus has just told them the temple is going to be destroyed. Okay? And they say, when is this going to happen?, And when will we know that you're coming back? Okay? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. If you want to know what I think, this is Kyle Scarborough putting on his hat, thinks that is important out of this passage, it's the series of commands that he gives us. The first of which is do not be led astray. This was last week's lesson. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. A lot of, uh, or some... Uh, theologians interested in prophecy believe this was World War I. Verse 9. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations... And when, you bring, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you, do not be anxious beforehand what you are going to say. Another command and instruction to us, do not be anxious. Now, we know that there's other passages in the New Testament that encourage us not to be anxious. So if there's all these passages encouraging us not to be anxious. Why am I so anxious? Because we live in turbulent times. What Jesus is telling the disciples in this chapter is I have it all under control. All of these terrible things going on, don't be surprised by them. Don't be anxious. Do not be anxious beforehand about what you're going to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. We have a promise of salvation at the end of this. Now, what period of time is this passage talking about? If you did do the detailed study that people have done, if you are a post-millennialist or an amillennialist, you would say this is all happening before the destruction of Jerusalem. If you are a dispensationalist, which is what we as a community believe, you're going to say this is the beginning of the tribulation period. This is all the bad stuff. This is the bad stuff of the church being per- the church being persecuted, except I just said that wrong on purpose. Why? Because the church isn't here. You do know, right, that if you read the book of Revelation, there is this discussion to the seven churches at the beginning of the book of Revelation. You know, to the church at Smyrna, I say this. To the church at Laodicea, I say this. And then there's no more discussion about the church. Why? If the rapture occurred at the beginning of the tribulation, the church isn't here. What we're talking about here are persecuted Jews in the millennial period. I mean, in the tribulational period. Okay? Let's keep going. Because the next verse is kind of important. But when you see... The abomination of desolation, standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, and the rest of it is about running away. What in the world is the abomination of desolation? Well, from the source of all knowledge, Wikipedia, in the 2nd century B.C., a Greek by the name of the Fourth went into the temple and he sacrificed a pig on the altar. Guess what? That was a really bad thing. That is what is going to start the Jewish revolt against the Greeks and leads to what in the good Catholic Bible is the book of Maccabees, the Maccabean revolt. And they're actually going to take the, kick the Greeks out. Now, you might ask the question, what are the Greeks doing there to begin with? Well, you remember Alexander the Great went pouring across the known world he, and he captured what is the Middle East, he captured the, destroyed the Persians, he captured all of that, he died. And his kingdom was divided between his generals. One of those generals was Seleucid, and these are the Seleucidans, however you pronounce that. That's who this is. So the Greeks are going to be kicked out. And at some point in this, the Romans are going to step in, and that gets us to biblical times. But, The abomination of desolation was when that which was unclean to a good Jewish person was brought into the temple, or at least the place where the sacrifices were made, and was sacrificed, thus defiling the temple. Now, back to Mark. But when you see the abomination of desolation it obviously is not talking about this. This is in the past, by the time that Jesus is speaking here. Once again, if you understand the timeline, which I am not claiming that I do, well, I do sort of, we acknowledge the fact that this is the midpoint of the tribulational period. The book of Daniels, the book of Revelation, will talk about Three and a half years and three and a half years. And in the middle of it is going to be this event where this that was done in the second century BC will be repeated in some form or fashion. Something will happen to the temple to which you have to ask a question. What is that question? But there's no temple. But there will be, but there's not. But when you see, it tells you to run away. Let's read the rest of the passage. had not cut short the days no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened these days. Wait a minute. Three and a half years before this was an event called the rapture. The church was removed from the picture. We made it halfway through the tribulation and this horrible thing occurred jesus says run away save yourself but the elect would not be saved if god didn't cut it short who are the saved right here we know that there are people who are going to be saved during the rapture i mean during the tribulation period in fact, there are those who speculate that there'll be a great revival during the tribulation period. Why? Well, first off is this mysterious thing that happened where all the Christians just left. Okay? It might make you think a while. Just maybe, right? Where did they all go? Now, if you are a lukewarm Christian and all the Christians were taken, and you weren't, it might make you think even more. But we also know, and we hate this, by the way, we also know that oftentimes in the midst of persecution, the church prospers. The expectation is... The expectation is is that there is going to be a revival during the period of the tribulation. So there are going to be those who are worshiping Jesus. There're probably going to be Jews who are worshiping Jesus as the Messiah. It's ooh shoot. We should have believed that. Yes. And if the Lord had not cut short those days, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom He chose, He shortened these days. And then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, here He is, do not believe it, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all these things before. The second half of the tribulation is going to be even worse than the first half of the tribulation. The first half of the tribulation is going to be worse than, well, fill in your blank with your favorite historical period. But then it's going to stop. And here's the problem with those who believe that all of this stuff happened earlier in history, because we're pretty sure verse 24 didn't happen. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And when they will, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. How does the tribulation end with the return of Jesus Christ? And while the destruction of the temple was a nasty, horrible thing, by the Romans, it was not followed by the return of Christ. There are those who want to take these verses right here and make it into a, I don't know, a symbol of something, a picture of something. Okay? It wasn't a physical return. It was just kind of, well, he came in our hearts or something. We as a body... And we as me don't believe that. We believe and we understand that Jesus is going to physically, in a body, return to earth again at some time. And as this passage highlights, and we've talked about it three times already, when it happens, you will know it. It isn't going to be one of those events of, well, did you hear, was that it? Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, I don't know. It's not going to be one of those kind of events. It's going to be an event that is going to be seen around the world. It's going to be preceded by events in the heavens that are unexplainable. And Jesus is going to return. From the fig tree learned its lesson, as soon as its branches become tender and put out leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, I really like verse 31. Heaven and earth will pass away but my words will not pass away. That is one of the greatest promises that we have. But, the verse before it has caused confusion to people forever. What does it say? Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away. Now, who is the this generation if you are an a millennialist and a post millennialist and you believe that the destruction of Jerusalem is what is being talked about in this passage you will stand up with a straight face and say this generation is this generation It is the apostles. It's the people he's talking to. And they are going to survive until 70 AD when the temple is destroyed. We're off the hook. Unfortunately, Jesus didn't come back after the destruction of the temple. So what does this generation mean? If you have an ESV study Bible... And if you don't have one, I recommend it. It's a great Bible. has all kinds of wonderful notes in it. He gives us; they give a series of different discussions about what this generation might mean, and we will run through them just very quickly. The first is what I just talked to about. This generation means means the disciples. The problem with that is Jesus didn't return. All things mean, can mean multiple things. It can be the Generation will see the destruction of the temple, which is true. Another generation will see the second coming. Okay? This generation is a group of people sharing a particular quality. For example, it is the generation of all believers. We are the generation of believers. Or it can be the evil generation that will continue until the end of time. It can mean a race and probably the Jews. I'm going to go with the last one. A generation means the generation that sees the start of the tribulation and they will receive the return of Christ. Why do I put six different answers up there? Because I want to convince you it's a hard verse. Okay? I believe, though, he says, look at the fig tree. When you see these signs starting, Start your watch. That generation is not going to pass away until the return of Christ. Now, in my mind, that has produced lots of issues. Why? We all want to be that generation. We do. I reread a book this weekend. I'm not going to tell you what it is because you probably like it and I hated it. No, oh, I didn't say that out loud, did I? He was convinced, hmm? I did, he was convinced that this generation started in 1948. What happened in 1948? Israel became a nation again. So he, writing this book in 1970, was convinced that Jesus would return by 1988. Now, I could be mistaken, but I don't think it happened. If you go back to the age of the reformers during the Reformation, they thought they were that generation. The papacy was the Antichrist. He was being overthrown. Jesus was going to return in that generation. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. There is a parable elsewhere. We might actually get to it eventually. If you really knew when the thief was going to return, come into your house, you'd be ready. Or if you knew when the master was going to return, you would be ready. But since you don't know, you kind of get sleepy. Sleepy you kind of don't think about it. You kind of get involved in other things. You kind of get distracted by other things. And so you are not ready. And that's what this, the last section of the chapter, is telling us. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father, awake. What is the purpose of this chapter? For us to speculate which event caused what? Well, there's an interesting discussion, and it helps us understand different parts of the Bible. But the key to it is, are we going to be ready when the second coming occurs? Well, What does it mean to be ready? Do I have my red carpet ready to roll out at the appropriate moment? No. It means that we are doing that which God has instructed us to do. When the master returns, are the servants doing that which they ought to do? That is the question. That is the part of this that we, we can actually act upon. Teresa and I went to uh, um, Fredericksburg the last three days to escape. And uh, on our way down we were and back, we were listening to a series of lectures on the book of Revelation by a Dallas Theological Seminary professor. To Saint, I think I'm pronouncing that right. I don't know. And in his introduction, he addresses the question, what is the purpose of the book of Revelation? And I like this, so I wrote it down. It is to encourage the churches to endure. It is to challenge them, the churches, to godly living. And it is to remind us that in the end, God wins. That's the purpose of all of this. That's what we need to know when we study prophecy, when we study the second coming, when we study the 13th chapter of the book of Mark. God will ultimately be victorious in Christ. That's what the chapter teaches us. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you... That Christ will return. I pray, Lord, that we would be awake, that we would pay attention, and that we would not be deceived. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.